Coming up, a conversation between the accomplished artist and narrator of the Black American Experience, Steve Prince, and a friend to many artists in our community, Reverend Mike Winowski of Geneva Campus Church. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan, your host and on staff at Upper House. Last month, we had the joy of hosting a book launch for a new collected volume co-edited by Upper House's Cam Anderson. Cam is an artist and a writer, and before coming to Upper House as the associate director, he was the director of Christians in the Visual Arts, or SIVA, for a decade. The book that just came out is called God in the Modern Wing, Viewing Art with Eyes of Faith published by IVP Academic, and edited by Cam and G. Walter Hansen. The book project began when Cam was still with SIVA, and it included gathering close to a dozen Christian artists together who are deeply engaged in both modern art and Christian faith and community. One of the artists that was in the book and also came to Upper House for the book launch was Steve Prince a distinguished artist-in-residence and director of engagement for the Muscarelli Museum of Art at the College of William & Mary. And a little more about Steve. Steve's a native of New Orleans, and he currently resides in Virginia. Steve received, received his BFA from Xavier University of Louisiana and his MFA in printmaking and sculpture from Michigan State University. He's represented by Zucote Gallery in Atlanta, Georgia. And Steve has created several public works as well, and when he was here at Upper House, he shared some of those, including an 8-by-8-foot mixed-media work titled Lemonade, A Picture of America, that's at the College of William & Mary, and that was commemorating the first three African-American resident students at the college in 1967. When Steve was here, he had an amazing presentation at Upper House, which you can find a link to in the show notes. We also wanted to sit down with Steve while he was here, for the podcast, to get a fuller sense of his calling as an artist and an art evangelist, uh, as well as his passion for portraying the vibrancy of black American faith, history, and culture. And that's largely what the conversation you're about to hear is about. Now, talking to Cam, I was wondering who should interview Steve. And Cam thought immediately of Reverend Mike Winowski. Mike served as pastor of Geneva Campus Church for more than 18 years, And Geneva is a church we work with closely at Upper House uh, on a number of things, including our yearly Geneva Forum. Mike also creates his own art as part of his ministry at Geneva and has an abiding interest in the black church and issues related to race, justice, and Christian faith. And one of the unique features of Geneva Campus Church is just how many artists are in attendance there. There's a number of artists all throughout the Madison area who go to Geneva Campus Church because it is very hospitable and friendly to artists and seeks to promote the arts uh, in its ministry. So I thought Mike was a perfect person to pair with Steve. And with that, I'm delighted to hand it off to Mike here for an upwards conversation 
with Mike Winowski and Steve Prince. Well, Steve, I'm very pleased and excited to meet you. And uh, the first thing I'd like to ask you is this. You describe yourself as an artist, educator, and evangelist. I'd like to talk about all of those things, but first of all, in your mind, are those three separate callings or one interrelated vocation? Well, first and foremost, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. I think that those things are all interrelated um, because I think that it all goes into this idea of I look at things through the lens of the gestalt, and it's a psychological term, but it's this idea that um, uh, the whole to the part. Ah, and yes. so those are different parts that make up the whole person. And so for me to be artist and educator and, and evangelist, I don't turn any one of those pieces off of me. Um, when you encounter me as a human being, you're kind of the full person. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to shade uh, who I am. I want to make sure that I be my authentic self as much as I possibly can be. But, um, but definitely my work um, as artists, you know, as, and as educator and as evangelist, those are all outward facing kinds of vocations, so to speak. And they're, they're all very fixated upon not, not just the individual, but the communal. Of course, you're not a fragment, a collection of fragments. You're a whole human being. Um, would you consider, though, I, I just want to press a little bit on this. Would you consider one of those areas the primary or defining or foundational one? And the others sort of fit around that? Or did they all come to you at the same time? No, they did, they did not come to me all at the same time. Um, they, they came to me at different points. Because there was a point in my life that I never saw myself as an educator. Um, and there was a point in my life that I never would have seen myself as an evangelist, a person who could be in a foot and to be on a pulpit and to be speaking to congregations. Um, somebody who was going around the country, going around the world. There was, there was points in my life. I never saw myself doing that. The one thing that was consistent that I would say out of the three is that from the age of five, that's my earliest memory. I knew I wanted to be an artist. I knew I was called to be an artist. Wow. And I was very clear. And I've been clear my entire life. I have never deviated from being wanting and desiring and everything in my fiber of my being to be an artist. I have never had a doubt that that's what I was going to do. So could you say more about how that sense of calling came to you? Yeah. It, it was interesting enough that, you know, I grew up in a household. It was very strict down in the South, down in New Orleans. But it's a very faith-centered home um, that I grew up in. And then um, my father was a big stickler for reading. And so we had tons of books in the home. And matter of fact, he would oftentimes give me a book and he would have me. I thought I was doing book reports at school. He would have me read the book and I had to come in there and give him a report on what I read. You know, and I remember one of those books that stands out because it was such it was one of the biggest books that I read as a kid. And it was a life and the life in times of Frederick Douglass, oh. <laughs> this big thick volume that he drops on me. And he says, I want you to read this and I want you to come and give me some reports on it. So I would go in that room in his bedroom and stand at the edge, edge of his bed and, and tell him what I was thinking about the book and so forth. But, but uh, to push on that idea of the books, we had a lot of encyclopedias in our home growing up. So we had about three or four different sets up on the shelves. And so when I was five years old, I pulled the letter M off the shelf. And I began to leaf through the pages. And I got about midway in the book and I ran across some pictures and it was by the artist Michelangelo. 
I had a feeling it was going to be him. Uh-huh. The, the MIs, and there he is. Yes. And I was, you know, like smitten by the images. I was like, oh my goodness, these are so beautiful. Do you remember any particular image or pro- artistic program? I remember the specific piece that caught me. It was the image of Sybil. Ah, and that's Sistine the image Chapel. on the Sistine Chapel. And she's holding a scroll and she's got her eyes cocked to the side. That caught, captivated. It captivated me so much that I tore the picture out of the encyclopedia. Mm, mm. Yes. <laughs> Did and, you have to say three Our Fathers and three Hail Marys for that? I might as well because I sure was raised Catholic in New Orleans. <laughs> but yeah, I took that out of the encyclopedia and I took it out, but I tried to draw it. I got another piece of paper and some pencil and paper and I started to try to replicate this thing. It's five years old. And, um, and of course, I remember it because, you know, I got a spanking for it. And then I had to put this picture back in the book. And if you know anything about encyclopedias, I know that some of our listeners out there probably didn't grow up with encyclopedias. But those books are tightly, tightly bound. Yes. And that clay paper is not that easy to repair. No, it is not. And so I put it back in. And I used scotch tape to tape the picture back in there. So that book, that page never got back in the book right. So the subsequent years that I would return home, I would look at that bookshelf off times because they held onto those books all the way up into Hurricane Katrina. Um, so that was, what, 2005 when Katrina hit. So my whole course of my life up until 2005, that image, that book was on that shelf. And it was a that was Encyclopedia Britannica or something like that. And I just would look at that book all the time. And it was a reminder to me of the journey, especially when I became, became an adult. And, you know, I went through all the school and education. And, and I started making it out there as an artist. I'm showing in galleries and museums. And I'm creating commissions. And, you know, I'm living that, I'm living that life of the artist. I love that story. And you should keep that book. It's, it's a document. It's an object. It's one of your first... You might say artistic products, actually. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I wish I could, but that book, the book is gone. Um, Hurricane Katrina took it. And um, it's quite profound when you think about it. You know, the word Katrina means cleansing. Mm. And, you know, and that, that brought about one of my pieces that I created some, some time, well, just a short time after. I called it Katrina's Dirge. Katrina actually inspired quite a lot of art, didn't it? It did. Absolutely. Yes. You said you grew up Catholic, and I knew that. Um, mm-hmm. The Catholic Church has used and incorporated visual art more than most other churches in the Western tradition. Did that influence you, do you think? Absolutely. I, I think it goes back into your first question, you know, about that journey, about how those pieces get added into me and how do I see myself as a, a, a full package of a person with all those parts added on. And so, um, you know, I, I, some of my earliest memories are because um, I was I went to I went to kindergarten kindergarten through college in Catholic institutions. So I went from Saint Raphael to Redeemer to Xavier. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then for several years when I was in middle school age, I was an altar boy. So I was in a church all the time. So I was there for funerals, for weddings. I was up there on on the on the pulpit, you know, ringing the bells and. And on Station of the Cross, swinging the lantern with the um with the incense and it's a all. Very that. sensory experience. Yes, it is. I mean, think about the church I went to, St. Rayfield. You know, the marble floors, the big, long, tall, cascading marble co- columns, the stained glass windows, the smell of you know of, of, of the incense. As soon as you walk in, it hits you. As soon as you open the door, the cool air. You know, the sound. If you make a sound, the echo that would be made. So it almost it. 
it's almost as if the, the built structure kind of challenged you to, to be more reverent, mm. to say, no, I need to be quiet. I need to, I need to come in here composed um, because I'm coming into a sacred space or a sacred womb-like space. And so all those symbols and all that meaning and all that history, you know, even down to the structure about the way in which the church is shaped has affected me, you know, and this polynarrative of, of symbols uh, or dense pack of symbols all in there. And that is my work has taken on a lot of that reflection and I've used it. So it sounds like unlike some artists, you never really felt much tension between your art and your religion, your art and your faith. No, I, I see them all intertwined. I mean, I mean, think about it this way. I mean, I didn't choose this, but I grew up African-American, you know, in the United States. I grew up in the South, you know, I'm a male. Mm-hmm. And there's a history that I stumbled into that has been circumscribed upon my body. All that stuff I'm intersecting, all the stuff I'm learning, all the stuff I'm trying to be taught by my brother and by my father, by my mother, about what, you know, it's almost as if I had black codes about things that I could do, you know. I remember years ago I was teaching in a class and I asked the students, did they ever get that talk from their father or their mother? And that talk that I would get about my interaction with the police, that shapes you. When you go out and your parents are worried every time you walk out the door and wondering if you're going to return or wondering if you're going to be caught up in some, some scheme or some kangaroo court that you would be accused of doing something you didn't do. So why now the importance of education, why my dad was pushing on the books reading, because that was the key that they saw. They saw your faith as a, a key component, but they also saw the, your education as your key to success, your key to being able to provide for family, your yeah. key to being able to um, show this world that is an, operatively is like against you to show your worth and to show your value. You know, so a lot of my life was about exerting to say, no, I am valuable. No, I am, you know, and then to the point where I had to get to in my adult years to say, no, I know I am those things. I know I'm valuable. I know I'm beautiful. I know I'm smart. I know I have a gift. And then now let's, let's, let's move out of that space. Let's move into a space where I do. And I use these gifts. I use these things that have been given unto me and I use them societally. But you grow up African-American in the United States, and you feel a constant resistance to that affirmation of your worth as a human being. Absolutely. And do you still feel it today? I mean, I don't feel it per se, but I know it exists out there. There are instances where I have run into it, but I'm so firm in who I am and what I have to offer that I don't let those things become obstacles to me. And I'm not trying to exert to try to show you who I am or to explain who I am. I'm not going into that level. Um, you know, that is not, that's not my job. You know, I really look at it and say, that's your problem. And then the other thing is, too, is that I know that the light will shine in the space of darkness at all times. And so that's what I need to be, be that light. And when you're that light, those who may have looked at you one way, and those who may have misread you, misread you, those who have made, may have made a presumption of knowing you, that gets deconstructed and it gets torn down all by itself without me having to exert to do it. I just be me. You used the word, the beautiful word light. It seems to me that African-American artists have for you and for many other people 
uh, have been torchbearers, have been people who made the light shine in the darkness. Your chapter in a new book, God in the Modern Wing, focuses on two African-American artists, Elizabeth Catlett and Charles White. Uh, I'd like to talk about them a little bit and their work and how it relates to your work. You observe that they bore witness to a lot of evil things. You named lynching, housing discrimination, Jim Crow laws, black codes, vagrancy laws, and systemic racism. And you begin with a quote from Charles White in which he explains that his subjects are African-American, but that he's trying to express a universal feeling through them, a meaning for all men, for all people. So uh, maybe I could ask you two things. Uh, Is that what you try to do in your own art as well? And maybe how do you go about that? Well, first and foremost, um, Elizabeth Catlett and Charles White have been major influences upon my own personal work. Um, I had the distinct pleasure of meeting Elizabeth Catlett. Um, on a number of occasions. I did not get a chance to meet Charles White. Um, But I met Elizabeth Catlett when I was a grad student at Michigan State. And um, a funny story, um, her son, uh, Francisco Moore Jr., was on the campus, and he is a percussionist. Um, I befriended him and so forth, and we were talking one day, and I said to him, I said, hey, Francisco, I said, what do we have to do to get your mother to come here? He said, me. (laughs) And I said, okay. I said, that's good. So what I did, I conspired with a group of graduate students, and we went to other departments on campus, and we, we gathered up funds, and we put together a conference, and it was called Monumental Discoveries. And our objective was was to get people of color onto the campus to diversify who we were being exposed to as artists on the campus. And I was doing it selfishly, but I also knew that, that by bringing them to the campus, it would open up to show not only my professors but my fellow classmates a more diverse view of the art world beyond the limited view that I felt that we were receiving from the books and the periodicals and things that we were being exposed to. So I gather that means you were breaking some new ground at, at Michigan State. Absolutely. Absolutely. But but think about it. I mean, to even say that concept of breaking new ground, I mean, that has symbols and metaphors are all built into that. And we think about, again, growing up in America as an African-American, the African-turned-American you know, through the institution of, of chattel slavery, where people are coming here and stripped of their names. Breaking ground is not a metaphor there. Either, it's not a it? metaphor. It is actual, you know. And so when I think about that, I think about what people had to do and the ways in which they continue to maintain themselves in the midst of that turmoil, in the midst of that trauma. I mean, those who survived the Middle Passage, that's extraordinary. And those who continue on to thrive and still find love in a country that is making you do something and treating you less than human. And this goes on for hundreds of years. And then you got generation after generation that's coming out of that. And so I become a recipient of that history. I become and I that's what I've inherited, you know, that pain, that hurt, you know, but also but also within the ecosystem of a nation that has inherited that pain and that hurt and that shame of that institution and ways in which some many people are trying to close their eyes to it. I am wide awake to it. Yes. And I'm trying my best through my art to bring that stuff back up, not to unearth it in such a way to, um, to point a finger, but to bring it up so that we can understand systemically what has happened, what is going on, you know? So when we get to a moment with George Floyd and with, Brianna Taylor or Trayvon Martin or 
our, our, um, our Eric Garner, the name, the list goes on and on that I can call out. And that's just in the last 15 years. You know, go back to Emmett Till or Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and go down to so whole many people that were martyred. I'm in that lineage. So there's a, there's a deep responsibility within that, not only to our people that I feel connected to, but there's a deep responsibility within my faith. And knowing that is not just simply the people I'm connected to is that I'm connected to, we connect, we all are connected. And so there, there is so much healing that needs to take place. And so I see my artwork and the, the, the work, the way in which I do it. So now as educator, as artists and as art evangelists, oh, that's all together. That's all one stroke. Yeah. You know, that's why it, it comes together later in my life, but nonetheless, I don't see them as separate. I see them all together. Yeah, thank you for that beautiful answer. And I I don't want to turn away from that pain that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. It's all through your art, and I want to talk about a couple of your pieces at some point. But I also want to uh, take a moment to affirm that in addition to that oppression and suffering, there is also an amazing dignity that emerges from those people who were forced to break the ground for no compensation. And and one of the pieces you mention in your chapter in the book, God in the Modern Wing, is called Harvest Talk by Charles White. Um, And there's there's an amazing quiet dignity and, and love and beauty in the interaction between those two agricultural men workers taking a break there. Um, yes. Could you just talk about that piece a little no, bit? No, you, you, so you eloquently placed that. Um, I, I love the way you defined it and described it. And that is, that is a key element about Charles White's work. Uh-huh. And that was one of the things that he was doing. He was trying to show that dignity. He was trying to show that power. He was trying to show the strength. And so things that he did mechanically in terms of design and drawing, like the enlarging of the hands, yeah the change of the scale, the shift. He's doing these little mechanisms. But the, the, but the, the other element is the close-up to the body. The body is taut and strong, virile, you know, um, very anchored. You know, even, you know, there, there are some other images that I didn't show inside the text, but, you know, if I just go through his, his, um, his catalog, it's consistent that he's made those types of images and in terms of his work. And um, so I, I've definitely pulled from that, and I use a lot at my work. But um, I would say of most of his images that I've seen, um, of course, I can't speak to all of it, but the, the ones that I've researched, there's a consistency of a, like an isolation where he really focuses on maybe a single or a few characters. Well, the other piece you mentioned in your article was called, I think, This My Brother. Mm-hmm. And it almost looks like an Orthodox icon, the it way does. those walls it does. are surrounding the main figure. But yeah. it's a lot more dynamic an image than harvest talk yeah but you see the twist in that figure yes and it just you know even the way in which he shows his back and the way in which the you know the glutes you know are 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 really t- tense and the back and the arms yeah, he's almost writhing in yeah and and then the, the the stone like work that's around him is like he's is almost like he's part of it you know it's like he's like he's hewn or like oh what is that's the proper word hewn from it you know it feels very sculptural and that's what I think about his work, the volumetric nature, the way in which he does, he utilizes the mechanism very much like a, um, Caravaggio, that, that chiaroscuro, you know, the way that internal light is in the figure. And the, so you can see the bulging of the form where he's pushing that dark around it and those light spots push forward. 
So he's controlling that. And so that control of light within composition gets you to read this like this dynamic expression of the figure. And then now the swell of the muscles or the torquing and twisting of the figure, that is the control of the artist in representing. Now he could have just had the person just stand there and just kind of do a quarter turn. He wanted to show more of that energy, you know, in the figure, you know, and, and I can imagine, I know I do it, but I can't speak for Charles White. Again, I never met him. I never seen him in the studio, but when I'm making an artwork where I can identify with him, I make that figure like that. And if, especially if I'm not doing it from a model, who is my model? It's me. I'm in a mirror. I'm twisting my body like that. I'm torquing my hand in those kind of ways to get that feeling. And I'm using my body as that symbol inside the inside the composition. So could we talk about one of your pieces? Absolutely. Um, how about the one that I think is called Bird in Hand? It's got a lot of dynamism in that image. Um, could you talk about how you created that image and some of the maybe artistic vocabulary that you're employing in it? Absolutely. Um, Bird in Hand, the full title of that piece is called Bird in Hand, colon, Second Line for Michigan. I want to hear you talk about the second line, too. Absolutely. Well, I, I definitely got to start off by talking about that the, the funerary tradition coming out of New Orleans is the philosophical foundation for my work. And for those who do not know what that funerary tradition yeah, is. Yeah, I think you should say a bit about that. Okay. It's broken up into two parts. Um, the first part is called the dirge. And the dirge is a mournful tune that's played for someone who's being laid to rest or for the deceased. And musicians purposely make music to get the congregation and all those who come out for this viewing to, to cry and to pour out. And as they understand, uh, as, as, as we all understand in mourning, you know, I mean, we, we all hate to lose. But one of, the, one of the greatest things that you want to do in a loss is that to have some sense of closure. And that's what a funeral is. It's closure. I can imagine, I mean, we're, we're just a few days shy away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yeah. There's families that never saw, never had that closure. Right. Because bodies were never found. The remains are never found. And the same is true of a lot of victims of racial violence. Yes. Bodies just disappeared. And the same thing happens in terms of just war. Where where you, there is nothing left, all you have is the memory, and you create some kind of effigy or something to say, "Oh, hey, I want to make this thing, and this is the memorial for that person." So, you know, the dirge is about getting that element out. It's it's the expression. So once that body is laid to rest, so the procession takes place and it goes and lays their body in, into the ground, or in New Orleans context, above ground because it's six feet below sea level. Um, but that's not even the case anymore because all the grave sites are used up in New Orleans. And so everybody's being buried in the outskirts because uh, because of just the time. So it translates into what is called a second line. Now, a second line has many multiple meanings. Like you hear a second line, what's the first line? Well, the first line is our life here on earth. The second line is the afterlife. But it has a natural meaning as well. The first line is the family is associated with the person that's being laid to rest. The second line is the families and the friend the extended family that comes out in support of the first line. Uh -huh. So that is foundationally what my work is hinging on that. Hinging on that in the sense that the dirge can also be synonymously ex expressed with the everyday. And that could be on a micro level and a macro level. Micro level in terms of what, what we individually go through in our own lives and the stuff that we have to deal with. That, that doesn't get seen. That doesn't get heard by everyone. And some of the stuff that we harbor that's your dirge. 
But then if you think about it from a macro level in terms of communally, socially, societally, oh, we're in a dirge moment right now. We're in a pandemic. Yes. And the amount, hundreds of thousands of lives that have been lost in this moment, people are struck dead in this moment. It is a dirge that we're all collectively going through. All right. So that is something that we must face. And, and you can't escape. We can't escape death. You know, we don't know the second, the hour, nor the minute of our passing. That is this truth. Then the second line comes in the idea that it is the afterlife. And my question is with the whole concept of the philosophy is, can we have an experience of the second line while we're still alive? And the answer is yes. I knew it would be. <laughs> say more about how that works. Christ tells us several times over. Now he tells us now you're doing the evangelist part. Yes, Christ calling. tells us in his parables. <laughs> but Christ, he says it so eloquently in the garden with Nicodemus. <laughs> you know, it's like when when he tells me, you know, in order for man to enter the kingdom of heaven, he must be reborn. Well, how can I go back into my mother's womb? No, silly. I ain't talking about going back into one's womb. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. And that is what we must go through. That is what I think is a calling, is a revival that needs to take place within our nation, within our world. It seems like part of the second line is the community of those who are still living in this world have to continue to care for one another. I'm thinking of like Jesus saying to his mother and the apostle John, woman, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. Yes. Oh, beautifully put. Beautifully put. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm yes. still... Uh, I'm still... <laughs> Uh, in the afterglow of some of your work. So, oh, indeed, so, indeed. So no, let, beautifully put. I love it. <laughs> well, let, let's come back to bird in hand mm-hmm. and the oh. second line there. Um, yes. There's, so, so, there's two, uh, there's a duality in that work. There is. There's a and, first and a second line in that work. There is. And and I wanted to embody and show it all. And the reason why I created that piece is because I spent time in Michigan and I also know about, you know, Michigan's automotive crash um, in terms of what took place there. And, I went to, I spoke at Cobble Hall in Detroit um, in the height of the crash. And you talk about the place looked like a bomb hit it. You talk about major buildings in downtown Detroit, empty, vacant, homeless people literally lying in the streets. I walked from my hotel to Cobo Hall, which is two blocks, and I probably encountered easy 35, 40 homeless people. That is, I mean, in an American context, you know, you're talking about the most prosperous nation in the world, you know, arguably. The most I used prosperous. to be really struck. I lived in Canada for a number of years, and crossing over from Windsor into Detroit, it wasn't as a night and day difference. Yes. So that that is indelibly etched in my my, my consciousness. And then... New Orleans, which has been in a perpetual dirge on so many levels, but so much stuff has been glossed over by the food, by the music, by Mardi Gras. But there's under, there's an undercurrent there that that didn't get expressed, that gets exposed as Katrina by, by definition means cleansing, as I say, has cleaned away our vision so that we actually able to see it more clearly. And we saw the disparities. We saw it very clearly in terms of who was occupying the Superdome. And, you know, and, and it goes on and on and on. So yeah, anyway, back to the There's another piece. piece of yours, pop, 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 that I think has that kind of disparity in it too. But, but maybe we'll stay on Bird in Hand for now. Yeah. So in Bird in Hand, it moves in the back of the composition. It goes from the dirge where you see them processing. But at the top right corner, there's this 
Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which is not the Four Horsemen, but it's my creation. It's my mythological formulation. And they're carrying in the hands of old 1950 Chevy Coupe as if to rebirth it, as if to bring something back. And then they process around and they but lay down again, this a, kind a of That's a Michigan spirit. theme there, isn't it? Yes, it is. So, so I want to make sure that that Michigan element was was evident in the piece. But but I took one cultural happening or space and I meshed it with another cultural happening. And that is what has to happen in terms of when we talk about change in, um, within our societal structure. It has to be a crossing of those lines. It has to be a crossing of those conceptual borders in order for change to happen. It has to be a meshing of traditions to, to make change. And then by the front of that composition, it goes into the celebration and you literally feel the shift in the piece. By the front, they're they are, they are reveling and they're enjoying together and all the other symbols I begin to embed in the composition. So if I recall correctly, and I don't have the images in front of me, I'm just working from memory, but I think there are two handkerchiefs in that painting. Could you talk about them and how they work in your artistic vocabulary? Absolutely. Well... Technically, there are three. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, that I put in the composition. The other one is smaller and it could be missed. The third one is in the back pocket of one of the guys. Um, he's the, I think, the trombone player. He has the third handkerchief. And that is a recurring element within the work is the idea of the trinity. Um, and then the larger anchor of the composition is based on a triangle, um, which I pulled some notes from Picasso's Guernica. As oh, as yes. a reference to that piece, yeah, um, compositionally, only compositionally, not not content wise, but content in the sense that he's dealing with a horrific moment right. that takes I place in the town of Garnica. Immediately, as soon as you said that, I feel the resonance between those yes. two, and that is why I chose to make that image nine feet by twenty feet, pulling from that because that piece by Picasso is like seventeen. Yeah, 20 I stood feet. in front of it, and I think it's in Madrid. Yes. You see pictures of it in your art history book, but it's quite another thing to stand in front of it. It is a whole, it's a visceral experience, you know. So that's what I wanted to give. So when you walk in front of that piece, many of the characters are your size. Some of the characters, of course, like 10 times the size of you because now I'm playing off a mechanism in terms of design, in terms of figure foreground, middle ground, background to create the depth of space and the composition. But nonetheless, I got characters that you literally can walk along the piece and then you just... Walk, as if you walk into the procession too as well, you know. So, um, so back to the handkerchiefs. The handkerchief is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And how so is that in funerals and weddings in New Orleans, they will release doves. For weddings, they release one because that's the two becoming one. For funerals, they release three. Really? I did not know that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, carrying that soul off into, into heaven. And in the black community, it got expensive. So it got translated into a white handkerchief. So when you see a person dancing with their white handkerchief and moving, that white handkerchief animated by the energy of the person dancing is symbolically a dove flying, especially if you see it at a distance. It looks like it's fluttering. And so that's why the white, you know, which, again, is similar to the Holy Spirit, which is embedded in that, that piece. And that is there. So when you look at that one on the ground, that the guy is laying to rest as if it's dead and it's like a little X on the end and I made it look like a beak. Yes, I noticed that. But then the one in the hand looks of like the woman, alive. it looks like it's alive because that which was dead is now alive. That's the prodigal son story. 
Your son, he was dead to us, but now he's alive. And all the layers of that, there's so many other meanings of that story in the, in the layers of it. But I'm using that principle, that which was dead is alive. And it's alive by the community working together to revive. And all revivals is about community coming together, meeting at a place, a space, and working in that space until change occurs. And that's what we have to do. We have to meet at that place, that space, and we have to work together in order for change to happen. You know, these, this, is, this is it. It's all laid out before us. Steve, throughout this whole conversation, you've been answering that first question that I asked again and again. You're showing us how you are an artist, an educator, and an evangelist all at the same time, and I really appreciate that. Could we talk about a couple other of your works? Absolutely. And then I'd like to also uh, talk a little bit about your current work as artist-in-residence and director of engagement at the Muscarelli Museum at the College of William and Mary. But first, um, in that museum, there are two pieces that I think are both um, fantastic in every sense. Like, they are a fantasy, but they are fantastic, wonderful. But let's talk about Pop, Pop, Pop. Anybody who's listening this, to this can look it up, but, but it's basically an image of a birth. But it's a very interesting birth that's happening there. Uh, can you just sort of describe it for the people who are listening to this podcast? Absolutely. Pop, pop, pop is a piece that's commemorating the life of Amado Diallo. He was a, a young man. He was an immigrant. He was in New York. And he was on his porch of his house. He was returning home from work. And he was approached by four plainclothes police officers who suspected him of being a person that had created, committed a series of crimes in the community. Yeah. As the story goes, he was backlit, and they were trying to identify him as this person. He was trying to tell them that he wasn't that person. Right. And he tried to take out his wallet to identify himself. And the guy who was closest to him thought he was pulling out a gun and stumbled and accidentally discharged one of his rounds. The th other three who were flanking him thought that, as he pulled it out, that he shot at him. So all of them began to unload on him. The How bullets. How many bullets? Altogether, 41. There are 41 bullets inside the composition. But he got hit with over 50% of the bullets, and he, of course, died. I mean, um, this goes back to my Catholic roots. Um, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a, it's a St. Sebastian story. Pierced by the arrows, but, you know, St. Sebastian, as we know the story goes, he gets nursed back from that. But these are... This is a nursing that he doesn't re recover from. But going to the element that you asked me about initially about this piece, the thesis of this piece is we as Americans must get up from our pregnant tables overflowing with bounty and be active in the lives of people, regardless of race, class, or socioeconomic placement. That's what the piece is about. So literally what I have to walk people through inside the composition because most people don't see it. And that's my point is that the table is literally pregnant. It's literally a pregnant woman. It's like, but you got to find her. And I point it out and I show you the head. I show you her breast. I show you her belly. I show you her left leg, which is embedded with thorns. Her right leg is embedded in thorns. In the middle, there's a vaginal region. There's an umbilical cord going out, and it's connecting to this full-grown young man who's standing at the front of the table. He's standing in a very cruciform-like way as if preparing for what is to come. 
and the two people sitting down at the table eating a good old American meal of chicken and french fries or don't even have a clue that he's standing at the table because they don't see him because he is a commodity. Hence, his body is covered with different names of Jim Bean, Smirnoff, McDonald's, AOL, all these things, Nike, Reebok, they're all plastered on his body in the ways in which he's commodified within the American context. And I say that we must get up from our pregnant tables because we have so much, we have so many gifts, and it's not simply about we come out of our pockets. It's, it's coming with our gifts and all the myriad of gifts that we have, and we have so many gifts within any stretch of a community. We scratch any block upon, upon this planet or, or in this nation is loaded with scientists and historians and artists and writers and singers and all these people with all these gifts. But what are these gifts serving? Some capitalist God? You know, is it serving just our families? Is it serving that group that you identify with? Is it about the 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 the, the success of just your children? Or do you look at it your children connected to a communal fabric or tapestry? Do you go into that classroom and look at those students who are before you as an educator and see them as your children too? Do you go into the pulpit and look at the congregation and see them as not only as the flock that's come before you, but as also the people that you are to serve and to stretch everybody in that space to reach out and to stretch and connect with others? You know, all those things, I think that that becomes, that becomes our calling, that becomes that element of us going for that light. That becomes that where we functionally work to the trueness of what the scripture says and how we should be acting and what we should be doing for each other. You know, all that's embedded in that piece. So, yeah, it speaks about the, the, the atrocities, what takes place with Amado Diallo's body. But I'm trying to raise a deeper question about what we must do beyond his body, beyond that. Because I only put 38 bullets on the floor. Mm. And you really, we say, well, where's the other three? Well, the other three are the, are, the, are, the, are the cells up above in the shape of bullets. Because we also have a major issue in our nation that has to do with prisons. You say cells, but what they are, in fact, is replicas of bird cages with dejected figures sitting inside. And that's, those are generations that are being wasted away in our prison systems in, in America. When we have the most people globally in prisons than any nation on the planet. Yeah, so the central figure in that is the man-child who is born, who's given such a painful birth into such a bleak future, and the juxtaposition is between those, those despondent figures at the top and the consumers at the bottom who don't even seem to be enjoying their consumption and who seem oblivious to the suffering around them. But you know what else I put in the image? I'll let you know that they have the keys. The keys are on the hip of the man. And we also have the hooks because Christ says to his disciples that he wants to make them fishers of men. And there's a hook on the ground. They're not using them. And that's what we got to do. We have to use the keys. And we can unlock. We can unlock so much stuff that's happening. We can break down so many systems. But we have to literally, it's, it's hard work. It is a dirge work. And um, but I believe we can find a second line. But the only way it's going to happen is we got to work together in order to figure it out. And we, we just got to We have we have to decide. And, and that that's part of the struggle is that 
everybody's not on the same page when it comes to these kind of things. No, that's for sure. But uh, in the article that you wrote for the new book, God in the Modern Wing, um, you described an experience in which uh, on one of your uh, trips, three different times, someone asked you, is your art prophetic? And I feel like you're answering that question now. I feel that pop, pop, pop is, is prophetic. There's another piece I think it's called In the Line of Fire, the Norfolk 17 in in the Muscarelli Museum. Could you talk about that one just a little bit? Absolutely. Um, that piece is commemorating the 17 African-Americans um, that entered into the public school system in 1958. Um, Brown versus Board of Education was 1954. But in 1957, you had the first nine African-Americans into the public schools in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's kind of like the space between the Emancipation Proclamation and Juneteenth, isn't it? Absolutely. Beautiful, a beautiful parallel. And, and that whenever we talk about justice, justice is always, has been consistently slow for African-Americans in this nation. It's like, yeah, we get this whole thing fighting. He gets to go to court, pass in court, and there's a celebration. But then there's a, there's a lack of action on this. There's not an immediate swift action to fix the problem it's like this slow it's like oh justice got a roll this slow so in the image i show a 17 african-american youth that were middle school and high school exiting out of a series of schools called the rosenwald schools and for those who don't know the rosenwald schools they were created by julius rosenwald by the urging of booker t washington they were friends and julius rosenwald who was one of the people that was instrumental in the creation of sears and roebuck he basically used his funds and created a series of schools across the South called Rosenwald Schools, and it gave black students a little better space for them to go in terms of schools. But when they brought about integration, they left those schools and they started going into the public school sector and going together. Now, what I show in that piece is I show them coming in with their culture. I show them coming in with their spirituality. I show them coming in with their economics. And I even put a song upon the sleeve. Ah, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. And then when you look at the image and look at the very bottom of it in the foreground, there's a black shadow on the ground. But that's not a that's that's a shadow because that's the bug, that's the dove up above flying and ushering them in. I call the piece in the line of fire purposely because if we look at it through the lens of the natural, in the line of fire is a scope where one is being shot. But if you look at it through the supernatural, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the fire I'm talking about. So it's always about how you look at something. So in the line of fire is the fire that we need to be walking in. And they're walking down on a checkered path, the checkered path or the symbol of the crossroads. That was a crossroad moment, you know, and that they were entering in. But guess what? Over to the right of the compositional space, I have a guy who's yelling vehemently. And he has a cuff link on, and he has the letters ST on it. And that is for Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond was one of the biggest voices who put like a, who put like a, one of his longest filibusters on the floor to stop the integration of public schools. But something interesting came out about him when he passed away is that he had, a, he had a relationship with a black woman. It was a consensual relationship, and he fathered a, daughter, a black daughter with her, but he kept it secret. He had a, a relatively healthy relationship with her. He kept contact with her over the course of her life, and he chose both to keep it secret. It seems like that's one of the things we 
never get quite right or too too seldom in the United States. We might have good personal relationships in some cases, but we resist the the widespread spread and growth and proliferation of justice. Yes, yeah, out of fear. It's out of fear because people think they're going to lose something or something's going to be taken away from them, something that they earned, or something that they, that they believe that they are due to them. And so it, it, it's, it's like the kids who are playing and like, that's mine, that's my toy. And it's, it's on the adult level. <laughs> and, and then the parent on the side who is supposed to act like the adult said, no, share, baby. Y'all can play with that together. But no, you can't. I want it. It's mine. I want all of it. You said ST on the cufflink. Um, am I right? I'm going by memory here, but is there also in that image, or is it a different work that says St. Pius or ST Pius? It says St. Piety. St. Piety, that's right. Now, yes. There's a Which, street in New Orleans named Piety Street. Yes, there is. There is, is a street. Is that what that's about, or is it something else? Well, no. Well, partly that. Of course, I'm making an evocation of New Orleans, but mainly I was making it for the fact that piety means pity. And if you look at the church that's at the center of it, the windows, the stained glass windows on the church in the background has a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. I noticed that, yes. And that's when, I'm not saying all, but many of the churches did that. Because in that moment of integration of the schools, of public schools, you have one of the biggest surgeons of the uh, schools in the private sector, in particular Catholic schools, exploded in that same moment, the 50s and the 60s. Because white families were pulling their kids out of the public schools and putting them into the Catholic schools. So all those schools just like exploded all across the country because they were like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm like, well, we just got to create another school. So first it was a stoppage in many cities where people, nobody went to school. <laughs> and then it was the integration of those schools. You know, then it was a separation. And then now you saw a slow integration take place. But in this moment right now, you've seen that separation happen all over again. Mm-hmm. You mean right now, today? Right, no, today. I'm as talking, we live. As we live. I'm talking about breathe. right now. We are seeing another form of that separation take place. And we're seeing it with the, with the neighborhoods. You're seeing it with the gentrification. You're seeing it with the forcing out of black families that have been traditionally in places. And they're using all kinds of laws and things and pushing them out. And they're reclaiming certain lands. And, you know, taking that which, you know, because many, many of the white folks in those time periods in the 50s and 60s moved to the suburbs. Meanwhile, many of the black families moved into the cities. I mean, there's a time in, um, when there's a time in, um, what is it? D.C. was called Chocolate City. Songs have been written about it. This is like history repeating itself. It's We've seen it before. And one of the biggest problems, I think, is that when, especially when white people start to reckon with our racial past, we don't connect it to our racial present. We talk about racism as if it were something that happened back then, and it's ongoing now. Obviously, these pieces we're talking about are pieces in which you engage that. What's got your attention these days? What would you be, or what are you engaging in your art right now about what's going on in the United States? Just a couple of years ago, I made a nativity image. Um, I called it urban nativity. It was not long after the the slaying of um, Eric Garner, uh, who was in New York, and he was he was out in front of a convenience store selling selling singles. And the police got him in a chokehold, and he said, I can't breathe. 
exact same words that George Floyd says in the right. middle of the street when he has a police officer that has his knee on his neck. So I made this image called Urban Nativity because that year, Eric Garner's children were unable to see him for Christmas that year. He was taken away way too soon. The man is, I don't know if, I don't think he was even 50 years old yet. He's maybe 47, 48 years old. And their father was removed because he was out there making a little extra money on the side for the family. Not, I mean, just think about the deep irony of that. He was selling cigarettes. The cigarettes in New York at the time was like $17.10 a pack. So he broke it up to sell people who wanted to get their little their nicotine fix, and he was selling them and making a little cash on the side. And then, but then think about the tobacco industry. Who's we subsidize back- some industries, and we oppress a guy who's just trying to make enough money to live on. Yes. And then you think about, well, who was the tobacco industry built on? I mean, what irony? You know, you think about all the layers of it. Just break it down. Tobacco. Tobacco. I mean, Virginia is tobacco country. <laughs> you know? I mean, he wasn't in Virginia, but, I mean, I'm just talking about just the crops. Definitely, you got tobacco. The worst one, they think, it was, was on sugar cane, you know, which is down in the deep south. That's an area where I grew up at. But nonetheless, that I was trying to pull all those elements out to get us again to look and to see you know, and it's my belief, you know, this is why I've been preaching so often, you know, so many different places that the artist is truth sayer. The artist is truth sayer. And we're the truth sayer is because we happen to see things a little differently than the everyday person. You know, I mean, think about it. And I know you're, you're, you as an artist, the way you look at materials is very different the way in which un- the other person will look at materials. Right. Especially about the fact that you're making these things from an installation standpoint and construction standpoint that people just understand what well, those same materials, they say, well, that just builds a house. So well, that makes a piece of furniture that I use. But then you take it and take it out of that context and put it in another symbolic context and give it new meaning and give us a new story, a new narrative to think about that material and to think about its nature beyond the fact that it's used from a utilitarian standpoint. That is, the tr- that, that is like revealing things that are hidden. That's the same thing a person does when they do a, a deep reading of something. You know, why the theologians are so important because they are making those connections that the everyday person is not making or to have the time to study to make those connections. And that, that, so all these roles become so important, you know? So as the artist, the visual artist, is that when I walk around, especially like here in Madison, you know, walk around and I'm engaged in the city, I'm looking at more than just finding the streets I need to cross. I end up getting caught up looking at the cracks on the wall, the textures. I'm looking at the way the streets are made. I'm looking at the artwork. I'm looking at all kinds of stuff. And I got to most, I got to pay attention too because I'm also knowing I'm in the city. You can't be walking around and be sightseeing too much and get hip side to head. So <laughs> that, that's me growing up in the South. So, you know, like, you know, you need to be aware when you're walking around. Look, you know, keep your eyes open. But nonetheless, I'm looking, but I'm also picking up other information. You know, even in the room in which we're in, which is a very modern room we're in, but on the way here to this room, the amount of textures that we saw in the space, even at wall, I had to touch it as we were walking towards the bathroom because I wanted to see, was that real wood or was that a fake wood piece? And it was a fake wood piece because I actually ran my hand across it. I'm so visually attuned to everything around me. I don't miss a lot. 
you know, and, and that, that is a gift. Yes. So now you're speaking as an observer, but you're also a person who produces images who in some, if I could riff on a biblical metaphor, God speaks to us, not just in words, but through the material creation. The word became flesh is the consummation of that. But as an artist, you're making the word become flesh often. Um, I, I gather you're conscious of that. Yes, fully. Matter of fact, I created a conference called Word Made Flesh um, about six years ago. <laughs> and it was focused on a lot of those kind of ideas. It was the intersection between um, religious studies, art, dance, um, music, um, English, history, all those together. I'd like to get into this idea of artists as uniquely bearing God's image in creativity. Um, when you make art, when you engage in creativity, um, do are you conscious of God's presence with you in those moments of creativity? Is your art and your art making in some way devotional as well as productive? Um, that's a beautiful question, uh, first and foremost. Um, and it, um, it, it, it strikes me. It, it hits me at my core. Um, and, and because the studio um, is a sacred space. My classrooms that I have and all the years I've been teaching are sacred spaces. I don't tell the students, but I consecrate the door, the doorpost. For every student that walks into that room, into that space, into this very sacred, very serious space in terms of teaching, and I tell the students very clearly, I say, I am not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to attack you. I tell them I love them. And I say, you might say, you might find that problematic and say, well, you just met me. You're talking about you love me. I say, no, I love you because I love the creation that you are. And I know how serious this space is. And I say, please know that. I'm, I'm, I'm in a space where I'm not trying to harm you. I'm trying to build you up. I'm trying to strengthen you and fortify you. And I'm trying to connect this art that we're doing to everything else in your entire life. And I want to show you and demonstrate to you the, the times that you're in my class that it's all connected. And so that becomes that whole movement. And then in the studio, you know, they ask about that whole idea of creation and awareness. I'm aware because it's been my entire life that everything that I have done everything I've been able to do or accomplish, um, the places that I have gone, um, it's all God that is giving his gift. And the intersections and the people that I've met, I'm, I'm meeting you right now because of the artwork that was created. You talk, we talked about a couple of pieces that I made, two of the pieces I made them 15, almost 20 years ago. But they, they have a life of their own. They do. And because I was not trying to simply make the work, and I'm not making my work just speaking about that moment. I'm trying. I'm trying to make a work that speaks to the universality of us. Um, so, so yes, it is commemorating what takes place. Like pop, pop, pop. It goes. It deals with um, Amado Diallo and the atrocity what happens to him and the effects of his family, and then all the other black men that think in that same kind of way. I mean, how many other black men were taken out, falsely accused? And I made another piece, which is not which is not in the the series, but it's called. Um, a Bessie Stitch. It's, it'll, it's another image that, it, that has a cage in it. Yes. And I use it again. And because that cage was the prison system. The prison system was Bessie Mitchell. In 1947, she goes to help her brother who was falsely accused. They were put through what is called a kangaroo court. For those who don't know what a kangaroo court is, it is one by which they go through the motions 
of court because they want to put it officially on the books, but they already have a verdict before they start. Because those six guys that are in that composition were randomly pulled off the street because they wanted to find an end. It's like what I talked about with that idea of death and we want a sense of closure because we, you know, yeah, you lose, you, you have the great pain of losing a person, but you want that body there so you can see it one more time and then let it go in the ground and you know that that's it. It's finished. But when you can't see that body, there's always this thing in your mind that may circulate. They may still be alive. Or maybe they, maybe they got it wrong. Maybe that wasn't him or her. And then you're forever looking at that front door, hoping that that person will walk back through. All those things, what I'm saying is, is that even in that piece of Bessie Stitch, you know, the woman was a seamstress, a seamstress. But she fights on behalf of her brother and six of the guy's lives, and she finds victory. But she, she didn't give up. She went to this guy's, uh, his last name was Patterson. The guy was like, he was, he was, he was out there fighting, fighting, fighting on behalf of people. So he was right there with Thurgood Marshall, and who was fighting in the court system. I mean, who was, who was the main researcher for Thurgood Marshall? John Hope Franklin, one of the most esteemed historians. But he was a researcher for, for him. You know, and John Hope Franklin, longtime professor at Duke University, major books that he's written, you know. Um, I read his autobiography. It's like, Paul, oh, you're talking about a powerful story. Oh, mind-blowing what he went through. But where did he come from? His father was a person who was fighting those same kind of fights. So he just takes on that, that mantle, you know. And then, again, I think it goes back to one of the first questions you asked me about that shaping of you and how do these things intersect. I, my dad would tell me the stories that he went through as a young man. And that's why he was so dogged about talking to me and my brother about what was going on and about what was happening societally and why education, education was so important. You know, so he, I'm reading Frederick Douglass, who was just before him, and then my dad's telling me his life, and then he knows that I got to walk that walk of being a black man in America. And he knows that in time I'm going to see these things that I couldn't see in my youth. And I was like, no, dad, that's not how my friends are. That's not how they are. They're nice and this and that. And then life starts happening. And then I started seeing, oh, that's my dad was talking about. It starts revealing itself. That's one of the things that I think still separates black experience from white experience in America. I don't have to worry about my kids reaching for their wallet. Um, you mentioned two <clears throat> sacred spaces. You mentioned the studio and you mentioned the classroom. I'm going to mention one more, and it might surprise you. It's not the church. It's a museum. You're on the staff of a museum. You're a director of engagement. What do you aim to do in that position? Home. It's a beautiful job. It's the first time that I've ever worked in a museum. And as the director of engagement, I have the opportunity to connect with all ages of the community through the arts, through the powerful, cathartic nature of the arts. A major project I did in 2019, I'll share this with you, last thing I'll share with you, is 2019 marked the 400th anniversary of the first 29 Africans coming to Point Comfort, which is now known as Hampton. I co-curated a show at the Muscarelli Museum called 1619 to 2019. So me and two of my colleagues put together this exhibition, gathered artists, and we wanted to make sure we gathered upon contemporary African-American artists for them to express their voices right now about the, about our experience and what is going on. We want to hear their voices. 
So we had over like 40 pieces in his exhibition um, gathered from people all across the country, contemporary artists, living artists. And then one of the other objectives of the show was to purchase some of those works and have them be a part of our permanent collection because that's another thing that we need to change the tide of within our, our, our museum's collections and especially contemporary collections across the nation is making sure we have more equal representation, not only of women, but people of color, of different African groups to have an equal billing within these spaces. So that's part, of, that's part of what I see my job. But then the other thing is with that 1619 and 2019, I created a, a, a community-based workshop called The Links Project. The Links, you may think about it through slavery or incarceration. Chain links. Chain links, but I didn't want to think about it just through that limited gaze. Because remember, I told you the artists, we, we know how to take material and we know how to shift its meaning. I, I thought about the chain link as a symbol of our connections, like who is my neighbor? And that are inextricable. You and I are connected. We may not have come from the same mother, but guess what? We are, we are sharing the same air. But we, we may not have grown up in the same places, all these things that are happening and so forth, but we are connected. And what you do here is affecting things that's happening in my area and what I'm doing in my space is affecting also. So what I did, for six months, I worked with my interns and we created about 40 different workshops and worked with over 600 people from 20 different countries. And they made individualized woodcuts in the shape of puzzle pieces. And they put on there their story. Then we put all these pieces together with a chain link motif going down the middle of it. And they made a woodcut that was four feet by 32 feet. We inked them all up with different colors. We put paper on top, blankets on top of that. And I drove an industrial steamroller across the top of it to make prints. It must have been fun. Oh, it was really fun. The people out there, matter of fact, one of the docents, she asked, can I ride the, the steamroller? I said, come on, get on. Her name was Marlene. Marlene climbed up on top and drove the steamroller. But I gave them this experience because I did decide the Wren Building because the Wren Building is the oldest continuous academic building in the United States. William Mary is the second oldest institution in the United States after Harvard University. 1693, this institution was founded that owned slaves that barred slaves, that built the buildings, cooked the food, washed the clothes. All this took place on that ground. So therefore, there needs to be a reconsecration of those grounds. There needs to be a space where we can come back and we can create new celebrations, but it needs to be a space where we can remember to remember that we have to go into those spaces. And then how do we create something different for the coming generations? How do we create new links? That's the challenge. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you, and um, I would encourage anybody listening to this to check out the collection and the programs at the Muscarelli Museum, and um, I think we'll sign off, and I'll look forward to um, seeing more of your work, Steve. I'm Mike Winowski, and my guest has been Steve Prince, Distinguished Artist in Residence at the Muscarelli Museum, as well as Director of Engagement. And that's at the Venerable College of William and Mary. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mike. Peace and blessings to you. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.